Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Christina Toole. Hello, Christina. Let's get Hello, started. how are you? Great, let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. I am a pianist and piano teacher in Rome, Georgia. I run my private teaching studio and I work at Berry College as a staff accompanist. I'm also the vice president of MTNA competitions for Georgia MTA. And I will be the newly elected president of the Rome MTA this coming fall. I also really enjoy judging various competitions and festivals in this area. I have played piano since I couldn't remember. <laughs> uh, my family was very musically involved growing up. Um, both my parents had musical backgrounds. My mom was a singer and got a degree in music and my dad played saxophone. And so they basically raised my siblings and I on classical music before we were born. They would play it in the womb. I think I was uh, born in the 90s during that uh, whole Mozart effect thing. And so they really believed in that. Um, and then, you know, I just remember growing up listening to classical music all of the time. It was a big part of our daily life. Uh, we would listen to it at dinner. We would have, us kids would have dance parties to Strauss waltzes. Um, my brother and I knew almost every piano concerto written by the time we were 12. Uh, it was just like we were inundated in that. My dad bought us season tickets to the Spokane Symphony Orchestra, and so we really enjoyed going and seeing world-class artists perform a couple times a year. Uh, my grandmother bought us a keyboard when I was eight, and so that is when I officially started piano lessons. And uh, I think I mostly taught myself to read. I think my mom and my grandma both helped for the first year or two, um, but I became a very good note reader. And um, then we started, my older brother and I started taking lessons with um, the church pianist at our church at the time when I was around uh, 10, I believe. Um, and she was great for helping us get into early intermediate repertoire. She um, kept us very inspired and motivated. Um, but I will say she was not the best at teaching technique once I got to the intermediate stage. And so um, by that point, my dad and mom knew that, you know, we were very invested in it and it was kind of what we did by that point. And um, they uh, made the investment to get us a much better teacher there in Spokane. It was really at that point that I accelerated and this high school teacher, um, you know, reworked our technique. I know that she worked very hard on that with both of us. And, you know, within a few years we were winning all the competitions and festivals in the area. Um, and, you know, we just, we practiced a lot and, and really applied ourselves, but yeah, it was a wonderful way to grow up, not just the constant experience of beautiful music, um, and the rich cultural exposure that you get through that, but our family bonding was a big part of it. Um, my mother still enjoyed singing. And so my brother and I learned to play for her. Uh, we became accompanists for our next younger brother and sister because they both took violin. And so we accompanied for all their recitals um, and we all played together in church too. And so we were basically, instead of the Von Trapps, we were known as the Von Torkelsons. 
our whole family. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we were constantly doing little concerts and recitals for re- relatives and church members and things. So um, yeah, it was great. Tell me about what practicing was like for you as a child. Uh, did your, were your parents hands on or were you fairly self-motivated? I was pretty self-motivated, um, especially like into the high school years when I, you know, realized, okay, I'm good at this. And I, I had that really good teacher and I was able to win things, you know, that always motivates you to practice really hard. Um, and then, you know, when I turned 17, 16, 17, 18, I took it upon myself to try and win scholarship money for college. And so then I was doing three hours a day easily just you know, because of the repertoire that I had and that I really wanted to, to place. Um, but when I was younger, um, I think my mom, you know, just in life in general, she put us on very structured schedules. Uh, we were homeschooled and she really worked music into our day. We, of course, had a weekly lesson and then um, we just had practice time scheduled in our day. Um, and then, you know, a lot of kids, especially these days between like 11 and 14, they are so involved in other sports and other things that they just don't make the time or they lose motivation. And it was kind of during that time that my dad came up with a great motivational system. He decided to keep us working hard and kind of earning our expensive lessons by setting up an allowance system. So if we practiced 15 hours a week, we earned $10. And if we practiced 20 hours a week, we earned $20. And on the flip side, if we were lazy and only practiced like 10 hours or under, we owed him $10. So that system kind of (laughs) pushed my siblings and I through. And so we, it worked out great for both parties. Our teachers were happy. We learned our music um, and we earned a little money for expenses or for college or what have you. Wow, that's very creative. And it sounds like uh, maybe more parents that are listening to this podcast can consider uh, some variation of that system. So we worked our way to high school and you've decided at that point that you wanted to be a music major. Do you remember why you made that decision that you wanted to be a musician? Because presumably you could have really studied any number of other things. Yes. Um, Yeah, we were all straight A students, you know, and so yes, we could have chosen whatever. Actually, it's funny that you say that because um, in the later years of high school, I was actually very involved in art, drawing, painting, and mostly self-taught with that. And I actually went to college the first two years as an art major and was not convinced that I wanted a degree in music at that point. Um, but yes, I did two years and then I started to realize I, I was doing a piano minor at that time. So thankfully I was still studying. Um, but I realized, yeah, that music is more my career. And my mom gave me a big told you so because she knew I was going to be a piano teacher since I was like 10, probably. <laughs> Moms just know those sort of things. Um, but yes, then I went transferred over to Florida State University and uh, got into the bachelor's in music program. Looking back over my training, I think that teacher in high school uh, was very motivational and like I still draw on inspiration from her, just her ability to make the lessons fun and also push us so much and accelerate us through advanced literature. Um, Her whole studio at the time that I was there was extremely musical and extremely um, 
proficient, you know, and, and we took the prizes a lot in a lot of the local festivals. And it was like a big camaraderie that we had. We were the Barbara Miller studio and who knows, um, maybe she'll hear this podcast at some point. Um, she's still teaching and living, I believe in Spokane, Washington. So, um, you know, and she was also, she was pretty and hip and young. And I looked up to her as a role model as like a teenager. And so just, you know, for many reasons, she was a perfect teacher for me. As for my collegiate piano teacher, Dr. Joel Hastings was the perfect coach for me. Um, I feel like he really understood me and the strengths and weaknesses in my playing much better than I did. He was a master at picking out the right repertoire for his students and in the lessons, knowing what to say to motivate you. Um, he was known to be really tough, but the type of personality that I have, I need that extra push. Um, and when you did earn a compliment from him, you knew that you were playing really well. Um, but being the visionary that he was, he saw something in me uh, during the bachelor's degree and encouraged or even persuaded me to apply for the master's program there. Um, and so it was a combination of his urging and uh, Dr. MacArthur's um, undergraduate piano pedagogy class. Those things together kind of got my fire lit for being a teacher. And then I did get into the master's program for piano pedagogy and performance. Great. So, um, so walk us through what happened after graduation with your graduate degree, uh, your master's degree now in piano pedagogy from Florida State. How did you end up where you are today? Yes. Yeah, so right after graduation, I opened my own studio in Tallahassee. And, um, and that was a great coincidence story. Um, there was, uh, for people who still live in Tallahassee, they'll know Beethoven and Company Music Store. And so I uh, was looking for a location in which to teach. And so I went in there and I talked to the owner and the owner happened to be renting out um, a studio space in the back of this music store at the time. And so that was my first studio. It was about the size of a large closet, but it was amazing for me and I loved it. <laughs> Um, and she would even included rent of the upright piano in the studio as well. So it just was a perfect place to start. And, you know, people call the music store in town when they want lessons. And so I quickly filled up my studio. Um, and it was just very providential the way that that worked out. Um, and then I think about two years later, that place was closing down and the music store was moving, but they weren't going to rent studio space anymore. And um, I had made great friends with the guitar teacher that also rented there. And together we went in on a brand new unit um, a few blocks away, actually. And so this piano you see behind me is actually the Yamaha U1 that I rented originally. So I bought it from the owner because she was selling everything. And, uh, and I love that piano. It's one of the best uprights out there, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, and then I was in Tallahassee for a few more years, full-time teaching, really involved with the Tallahassee Music Teachers Association and all of the events that they run. Um, and then my husband and I were looking to move to Georgia, somewhere in Georgia. He's, he's from Georgia and we got married in Blue Ridge and we really wanted to get closer to the mountains. Um, and so I contacted the Music Teachers Associations kind of north of Atlanta and the people that really welcomed me with open arms and said, yes, please come. We have work for you. We would love to have you was the Rome Music Teachers Association. And so I ended up here and here I am. 
now that we are talking about your teaching career, can you tell us how you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Yes, um, I put a lot of thought into crafting my teaching philosophy for my website. And so I think I'll just read it here as it really encompasses my approach thoroughly. I believe every lesson should guide and inspire students towards their musical goals. Each student is encouraged to make personal connections to the music they're playing with the purpose of becoming fluent in the language of music so they can truly become artists and communicate with their listeners. Some of the most important qualities I want my students to gain from piano lessons are a healthy free technique, the ability to produce beautiful controlled sounds, the ability to listen discerningly and appreciatively to music, and the ability to express their own innate creativity at the piano. I also help cultivate a love for sharing their music with others and the discipline to practice for lifelong success. That is by learning patience, thinking independently, and focusing their best efforts on the task at hand. So just to unpack that a little bit, I think prospective students can see that I will approach them as individuals. Um, I always take into account why they're taking piano, whether it's learning to play for enjoyment, whether it's serious study to enter a music degree program, um, whether it's brushing up their piano skills in order to be a better choral conductor. All of those are student scenarios that I currently work with or have worked with in the past. Um, and, you know, we all do. We all tailor the lessons to what they need. Um, but with each of them, adult or child, I try to develop the same fundamental things attention-free technique, and therefore the mastery of our palette of sounds at the piano. I also focus on their ability to be artistic and creative with their music, to understand the theory of their music, how it's constructed, so they can really appreciate it and interpret it better. And for kids, we all know they learn so many life lessons from piano, being patient in their learning process, being focused, thinking outside the box. Um, so I just try to make my teaching holistic, consider the whole child or the whole person with the little kids that I make their lessons developmentally friendly, such as embracing play or fine motor skill development. And then adult students have their own set of challenges, um, trying to keep their brain active in their geriatric years, um, dealing with lack of flexibility or aging joints, um, or even I have a couple of these, they're adept musicians on another instrument. And so they have to deal with the frustration of their piano skills not being able to catch up yet. Can I ask a little more about developing free technique in a student, especially since you talked about having a teacher in your middle school years who was not able to guide you as well in technique, then going to a teacher that really did develop that. And it sounds like from your teaching philosophy that that is something that is important for you to nurture in your students. A lot of teachers struggle to teach technique and healthy technique to their students. Do you have any tips or any um, processes that you can share with us to help other teachers? You know, also, there's many different thoughts of technique. I mean, it's schools of thought. So I wouldn't say that I actually stick completely to one. I do believe in high school, my, that teacher I was telling you about, Barbara Miller, I believe she was Taubman. Um, and something that I appreciate about that approach is that it deals with your body. It kind of helps you with an awareness of your body, how your body's supposed to work, and then applying that to the instrument. Um, and we know that the goal of technique is 
to be able to produce different sounds, right? To unlock our artistry. It's my approach. I've seen, um, I've seen the flip side, like you mentioned. Um, when I was young and approaching intermediate repertoire, I remember dealing with daily uh, tension. I wouldn't say pain, but tension, inability to play. Uh, some of this harder repertoire, I was really a struggle to practice it, you know, with octaves, I couldn't either couldn't reach the octave or I really struggled with repeated octaves. Um, I remember feeling trapped in my own body when I was at the instrument and just unable to, to get through a piece physically. And then it came back to bite me kind of after I left that high school teacher, we moved to Austin, Texas, and I had one or two good teachers there before I went to um, college. But neither of them really were hands-on with technique. They kind of left that up to me. And so I developed a lot of tension again. Um, I also developed tendonitis in, at FSU during my bachelor's degree. And um, again, the teachers did not head-on address my bad technique. They would address my sound. And they would, you know, they would model for you. And they wouldn't, but they wouldn't necessarily say, move like this, rotate more drop your shoulders, you know, these different cues that we have. Um, and so they left that up to me. And what I ended up doing actually senior year, I had a case of tendonitis and that was a huge problem because we we're preparing for the senior recital. Um, and I just realized I can't keep doing this. And I'm sure that I attended lectures and, you know, saw performances at that time that convinced me in my mind that there must be a way to play without tension and without pain. Um, because it actually was becoming injury at this point. Um, and I had a um, senior project, a research project due for Dr. MacArthur's pedagogy class. And it just so happened that I stumbled upon Barbara Lister Sink's program called Freeing the Caged Bird. And hopefully you've heard of it. If you haven't, I think she still works with injured pianists to fix them, quote unquote, um, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I believe that she's in that area. Um, so anyway, it was a video recorded workshop on healthy technique and retraining injury. And you're supposed to go and actually work with her, someone licensed to do so. But I wrote my paper on that and I applied the training to myself through the videos. And so I remember stopping practicing my repertoire. I took this all upon myself. I retrained uh, all the way back to the basics, learning correct posture, how to feel grounded on the bench, um, dropping relaxed arm weight onto a single note. I would sit there, I would do that for an hour. <laughs> um, and my teacher was like, what are you doing? And I, you know, I think I managed to explain to him what happened. Um, but those were two of my biggest issues is that I was not staying still in a grounded way on the bench. Um, I was not getting my arm weight down into the keyboard. And then very importantly, with all this virtuosic music I was playing, um, I was not releasing tension fast enough. Uh, you know, because anytime we're playing virtuosic type music at the piano, anything that causes, stretches us, quote unquote, or is a little difficult for us, we, our body naturally has fight or flight. And we have to sit there and work it out. So I think the fight response creates tension. And tension is honestly a natural response from our body but it's counteracting that, that people don't know how to do. And so for me, it was learning to instantaneously release, being mindful, knowing I feel tension in the shoulder. I feel tension in the elbow, in the left wrist, like being mindful and aware of my own body. And that's a big thing that I focus on, especially with adults. You know, um, I appreciate them because I can go into deep 
physiological discussions with them and they get it and they understand. But with kids, of course, you can't do that. So anyways, to wrap that up, um, I was able to implement that study. It was 100% life-changing. I performed my senior recital almost pain intention free and have stayed that way ever since. Um, so part of it was going back to the basics and just really being able to analyze and develop new mindfulness, mental systems, I guess, to notice tension and know what to do to get rid of it. So for children, um, there are some great books out there. Actually, one that I like working in is Catherine Rollins' Pathways to Artistry series. Um, it's a three book series. One is completely her works. I think that's the repertoire book, but it's all music by Catherine Rollin. Then there is a technique book, which I always use, and the masterwork book, which I also use, the masterwork and technique. Um, so technique is a the training volume. It just takes simple technique exercises. Um, she's found a way to word them in a way that really works. Um, shows them how to do a two-note slur with a nice drop and the release. Um, and then the Masterworks book is great because it's real classical literature. It's like short pieces, maybe preludes or Ludwig Scheidt and Gerlich, Gerlich, those sort of works. Um, but it's notated with what she calls physical vocabulary. And that is um, words like push off staccato, rolling wrist, thumb tuck, two note slur, things that cue the student, remind them, oh yeah, this is the technique we just learned and shows them how to use it in real repertoire. Um, so I really love that series. If it's difficult to um, know how to coach a student yourself, that's a really great one. Um, and, you know, with little kids, you're starting from scratch with them and their first teacher is almost the most important teacher. Some people think, oh yeah, they can learn the basics from anyone and then get a good teacher later. But having done that, I would say, I wish that, um, my first teacher had taught me a good technique. But yeah, um, starting from the basics with them, I mean, Faber, Alfred, all the, all the methods um, have the, a technique book and they're usually very good. You just have to um, be hands-on with it and really focus on that part of their training so they don't develop bad habits. Great, thank you for that. I want to touch on another aspect of your teaching philosophy that you shared and um, you talked about the importance of learning life lessons um, through music, and you mentioned uh, acquiring the value of discipline. How do you nurture that in a young student so that it sticks? Well, I think, you know, the time that they spend with us as their teacher in the lesson is so valuable. And we often will go into a lesson thinking, well, what do I want them to learn today, right? Okay, we're gonna get through X number of pages. We're gonna learn X piece. We're going to learn maybe a new technique. We're gonna learn theory. We're gonna drill note reading, right? So these physical things, but a lot of um, musical discipline, I think they just pick up from us in terms of what behaviors we show them and what behaviors we encourage during the lesson. Um, so I like to be sure that I'm teaching my students how to practice because they're, you know, it's easy to think, oh, they know how to practice, you know, uh, when they go home, but we need to show them specific ways to practice something as they get a little bit older and uh, they're on a hard, little bit harder repertoire, you know, the intermediate phase is especially important. We can talk to them about more advanced techniques. Okay, this is what blocking is and this is why you should block. 
okay, this is why you should practice your scales with rhythms um, and think outside the box, right? And be creative with them. Don't just run through an eighth note scale straight every time, right? With the little ones, don't just practice from the start of the piece to the end of the piece. Um, so teaching them how they should practice um, and even kind of if, if they're in a family that is not very good at causing practice to happen. Um, I have done little um, PowerPoint presentations for the parents, showed them, you know, this is what they should be doing. Here's what you encourage. Here's different games they can play at home to gamify their practice, make it a little bit more engaging. Um, and then, you know, we all of us have had students that are very fidgety or like have trouble focusing in the lesson. And I've even had, you know, three and four year olds and I managed to get them to focus. And <laughs> some of the ways that I do that is incorporating wiggle time, like incorporate time, plan for it off the bench. Um, you know, I'm thinking about little boys, especially, right? They just they got to move. So for the Wiggly Boys, um, it's great to uh, play a theory game uh, where they can lay on the floor if they want to. <laughs> they can do jumping jacks if they want to and uh, just get them moving while you work on oral skills, for example, or play a theory game, right? Um, then have them sit down. Okay, we're going to sit down. We play through the piece they're working on or one of the three pieces, for example. Okay, then we take a little break. Then we sit back down. We focus for five minutes at least. And just, you know, constantly redirecting their attention, then you have the students that will stay on the bench the whole 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but they, their mind wanders, right? And so then you just have to find clever ways of bringing their mind back to the piece, back to what we're doing, back to where we are. I had two little girls, they were extremely talented, uh, already, you know, playing the Beethoven Sonatina and F, and she's seven. So she's, she's very good, and but she's tiny. She's like little itty bitty and her brain is still her age, you know, and um, she likes to color. She likes to think of stories and her brain, you know, goes a hundred miles a minute. And um, so what I did with that piece and that person is I said, all right, so we're playing the space of Sonatina. Let's get, make a story to this piece and come back next week with a colored picture that shows me the story in your piece. And then, you know, that's all well and good. But then when she's playing the piece, I say, okay, wait, let's hear better staccatos in the left hand because that's the galloping of the horse's hooves. Or let's do a much bigger subito piano here because this is where, you know, so-and-so leaps out of hiding or, you know, hides or whatever. So you just try to find ways to make the music come alive to them so they're 100% engaged in that moment and in their music. Um, and I think that that just, you know, carries over to their home practice some. Um, and the last point, really quickly, think about what it is that you encourage in the lesson, right? Do you, if you're struggling with a student and they're struggling to focus or they're struggling to be disciplined or to just give it another try and to be patient, do, do we talk negatively to them? Well, I just wish you could focus or come on, you know, we have 10 more minutes. Let's get through this piece. You know, that all of that has a negative undertone. But if you see them practicing well or you can find any time that you can praise them. That's what I would do. You know, hey, Joey, you just spent five minutes working on this piece. You were 100% focused. That is fantastic. You know, really use reinforcing language um, to make them proud of themselves. 
I really like the point that you made about making a PowerPoint slide for parents. And, and I like the point that you made about how you approach uh, issues and lessons and how you, what you encourage and what you strengthen and what you highlight. Uh, it makes me think of growing up. My mother studied and majored in math in college. And I remember doing math homework was always so tear filled in my household because she would explain a concept to me um, expecting that I would understand it and I couldn't understand it. And she would get frustrated and she would say, I don't understand how you cannot understand this. Um, and, and I would be so discouraged and so disappointed. And sometimes I get the sense that maybe parents kind of expect a little too much from their kids in practice sessions. You know, it's common to hear from parents like, oh, um, you know, so-and-so little, little Johnny didn't practice this week. And it's like, well, do we really expect little Johnny to be able to, um, of his own six-year-old will to sit down at the piano for 30 minutes and practice and stay focused? Mm -hmm. Or are we kind of overestimating and are we putting adult like attributes on a child and yeah. expecting the impossible from them, you know, that's a very good point. And someone said there's probably Dr. MacArthur in her great wisdom. She said, you know, as a teacher, you have to think about training the parents as much as you do training the kids, especially with young children. So yeah, it's 100%. You have to be proactive, you know. Um, I've not always done well on this, but I've sort of learned through trial and error to be proactive with parents of elementary school children. This is what I'm expecting. Uh, they need you there. They need you there to read. I mean, come on, some of these kids can't read my lesson notes, so that's not going to help them very much. Um, get parents to sit with them and make it fun and, you know, how they should. So, yes, yeah, we have to train um, the parents as well in terms of practice, for sure. That's awesome. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? Yes, it has been absolutely wonderful. Um, I've learned so much over the years. Um, they have amazing conferences. Um, their magazine always has great articles and resources. And the best thing is the networking. You know, you make so many friends and it's great to know people who do what you do because we're kind of uh, fairly rare in society as a whole. Uh, there's not that many of us. And so it's just great to know other people. Um, I think I was aware of the organization, at least MTNA, even before college, because my teachers were always a part of it. And so I think I actually even did MTNA uh, competition at the state level uh, one year. And um, I, my, me and my parents were all under the impression that the teachers on the MTNA list were the best, the most experienced and so we always had a, a high view of that. Um, so during my master's degree, I wanted to become a member, but FSU did not have a student chapter at that time. And so my colleagues and I um, in the program, doctoral and master's degree, we formed our own student chapter. So I was one of the founding members um, of the Florida State University MTNA chapter. And then when I graduated, I became a professional member. Um, the local Tallahassee chapter really welcomed me with open arms. I feel like they taught me so much about how to be a professional, um, how to run festivals, uh, what community involvement looks like, um, 
and, you know, they just really honed me as a teacher to just by having mentors, which I still have, and friendships um, among these older teachers who took me under their wing and would give me teaching advice and what have you. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, moving to Georgia, uh, the Music Teachers Association here in Rome was very vital to that. It was because of their welcome that I felt safe to leave everything that I had in my studio of 35 students and to just uproot and come and rebuild here. So yeah, they just have been wonderful. And the GMTA um, executive board uh, that I recently joined um, has also been wonderful, very welcoming. Uh, that was Jan Adams. Uh, she met me before the pandemic, she came to Rome to judge our junior festival. And she uh, met me and said immediately, oh, I need someone with energy uh, to be on my executive board. And so she scooped me up for the uh, VP of competitions um, role. But I'm very, very happy to serve that. Excited. Great. Do you have any books about music or teaching that you can recommend? Yes, I have a few. Um, Robert Duke's Intelligent Music Teaching uh, is a great book. Um, I think he gives a fantastic analysis of the teaching process. It teaches you how to think about your teaching and about learning and be a more effective instructor. Um, some of my favorite topics in the book are uh, how to communicate better with your student, appropriate goal setting, um, giving useful feedback and um, how to sequence instruction so that you're setting students up for continual confidence building success. Um, and I think that is something that's really hard, especially as a young teacher to develop. Um, it's something we need to gain experience in is uh, how to sequence in learning and not give your student too much information at once or too big of a goal at once to where they will fail. Um, for practicing, uh, Philip Johnston's book, The Practice Revolution, is great. I think probably most teachers have heard of this one and read this one, um, but it's just great practical tips for uh, teaching your student how to practice at home, how to reduce their frustration and time wasting, improve productivity during practice. Um, for new teachers, Kristen Yost has a really good book called How I Made 100,000 My First Year as a Piano Teacher. And it sounds a little bit um, sales pitchy, that title, but it's really an excellent resource. She teaches you how to think like an entrepreneur, how to do market research, how to make a successful business plan, how to maximize your studio income and your studio offerings. And it's just really, really good advice. Um, that was written in or published in 2011. So it's still pretty much relevant to today. Um, and finally, I can't recommend this book, but I'm very excited to read it. This is The Musician's Mind. I just got it today, literally. Uh, Lynn Helding is the author. And I'm interested in this book because I really enjoy the link between music and learning music and our neurological pathways, um, the link between brain and music. And um, so anyways, I'm very excited to read that. Uh, I don't want to throw you for a loop here, but mm -hmm. I always like asking people how they come across the books that they come across. Like, do you have a resource list that you go to or you just Google, you go on Amazon and you search a topic and see what books come up? Like, how do you just because there are so many books, right? How mm -hmm. do you decide what book you're going to read? Actually, this is not really 
a DMTA pitch, but it kind of is. Um, their magazine or the MTNA National Magazine, both of them usually have book reviews in the back. And sometimes it's like actual music um, volumes and sometimes it's books like that. So I've definitely seen some good titles there. Um, and I always like the book review because it tells me what's in there and, you know, what can I can expect. Um, and I've actually thought of doing book reviews for them. So maybe I will someday in the future. Um, some of it is searching on Amazon and then um, the Facebook group, The Art of Piano Pedagogy. I think a lot of us are on there. Um, but often a teacher will post, oh, I love this book and it's so good for whatever. And so I get a lot of um, ideas from that too. Great. I love that. Thank you. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their career and interprofessional life? Yes, I do. And mentoring young teachers is actually a passion of mine and something that I want to pursue further in the future. Um, in the past couple of years, I've had the opportunity to speak for the undergraduate piano pedagogy class at FSU and also at Berry College. And I'm currently coaching a young teacher who wants to get a master's degree just like me. And so I'm just very, very excited about this topic. Um, I like to offer situational advice and really coach people one-on-one -on -one and help them problem solve for their teaching. But I do have some kind of blanket suggestions. Um, one is treat yourself like a business, even if you are just a self-employed sole proprietor like me. Um, you are the visionary, the business manager, the entrepreneur, the artist, all in one. Always be organized, on time, and professional. You have to take yourself seriously and advertise yourself well and basically take the initiative in everything uh, in order to succeed. If you end up in an area without much opportunity or enthusiasm for piano lessons, then create that enthusiasm, create opportunities for yourself. Uh, number two, I would say know your niche, know what you're good at and really focus your marketing on that and always under promise and over deliver. Try to envision your ideal studio and then work towards making that dream a reality. Um, if you find the need to stand out in an area that's maybe already saturated with piano teachers, then try to offer something that nobody else does and let that, you know, be your unique thing. A teaching advice would be teach to the student and not at them. Uh, I know that sounds kind of mean, but you would be surprised uh, at the number of young teachers, including myself, you know, a few years back that found myself teaching at the student um, and it just went, that means you're not engaging that student with, and you're not personalizing the instruction to them. Um, so ensure their success by learning to teach to their personality, their learning type, and how to really inspire them and engage them in the lesson. Um, model patient, efficient practice for them in the lesson, and also encourage them, you know, to be creative and make their learning personal on whatever piece or, you know, whatever they're learning, just try to personalize it to them. Uh, join MTNA and get plugged in. Not only will you get more student referrals and develop friendships, um, but you'll just have a wonderful community to lean on. And finally, get a mentor, someone who will invest their time and wisdom and help you navigate difficult studio situations, recommend resources and teaching tips. This has made a world of difference to me, and I still rely on my mentors a lot. Can I unpack that very last suggestion, finding a mentor? What does mentorship look like on a professional level? 
Do you meet regularly? Do you recommend books? Do you sit in on their teaching and you get give advice? What does that day-to-day uh, living look like? Yes, I would say all of what uh, you mentioned. Um, for so for me and my mentor, we were you know unofficially mentored. I actually never paid her, and sometimes you'll have um, you know usually a mentor is not someone who's paid, but someone who's just really investing their time in you. Um, and then sometimes you have a coach. And so I mentioned one young lady, I am actually her coach and teacher right now. So she is a student that pays me. Um, but then of course, I also enjoy the free mentor side of it. Um, so yeah, so with my mentor, I would have lunch with her occasionally, I would just talk to her at that time about anything I was struggling with in the studio or tell her my successes, you know, or ideas, what do you think of this and just someone to bounce ideas off of. I think um, to be a mentor really needs to go alongside someone uh, in whatever area you're in. And um, so, yes, it's, it depends on how hands-on you and your mentor want to be. You might just want to go to lunch every month um, or you might want to, you know, actually have weekly coaching. And so if that was the case, then yes, um, you recommend resources Um I give, you know, situational teaching advice, you know, help, I need help with communications for this particular family, or I don't know how to fix the student who can't hear when she's making mistakes, you know, situational things. Um, and then, you know, viewing their teaching and offering suggestions and tips, um, you know, and sometimes you can go all the way to preparing actual, um, you know, lessons or instruction plans in pedagogy to help them set up a studio, for example, um, or set up their website. So it really depends. It can encompass a lot of things. But yeah, it's just coming alongside and really trying to, um, you know, not be bossy in that person's life, but try to be there for them and just offer them a better way and and share your wisdom uh, Mm -hmm. with that person. Well, Christina, this has been a wonderful conversation. And this is all the time we have today. Thank you so much for chatting with me and thank you for sharing your life experiences. I wish you happy teaching and happy students.